This week on Political Research Digest, did Chinese trade competition increase nativism and elect Trump? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Donald Trump has repeatedly emphasized the threat from international trade, especially China. But did Chinese trade help raise the salience of his concerns or even help elect him? As trade conflict with China continues, I review new research on the local effect of Chinese competition on American public opinion and voting. Trade may matter even if views on trade don't drive the public, because trade shocks also affect citizens' cultural and racial views. I talked to James Bisbee of New York University about his paper, What is Out Your Back Door? How Policy Preferences Respond to Local Trade Shocks. He finds that citizens living close to businesses affected by Chinese import competition developed more negative attitudes about U.S. trade, immigration, and U.S. global leadership. I also talked to Francesco Ruggeri of the University of Chicago about his paper, co-authored with Andrea Cebato and Federico Maria Ferreira, Why Does Import Competition Favor Republicans? They find that Chinese import competition did not change attitudes on trade, but did consistently help Republican candidates by increasing negative views of racial and religious minorities. I encountered both papers at the International Political Economy Society Conference, a sign that international relations scholars are increasingly interested in U.S. domestic politics, mostly since Trump's election. Bisbee says Trump's election has generated a lot more interest, but his project was stimulated by a longer-term difference between economic models and qualitative local knowledge of trade's impact. And so that's what really got me interested in it, was this sort of disconnect between what I was being taught and what I was learning from, you know, sort of qualitative research. Trump has sort of weirdly been good for my academic career. I used to go to conferences and present my work back in the early days of my PhD, and half of the presentation would be trying to convince the audience that this was a meaningful question. And then Trump comes along and I, you know, I don't even have to spend a slide on that. And now all of a sudden everyone is like, oh, yes, obviously this is a big deal. But sort of the route to it was seven years ago where, uh, where I noticed this sort of disconnect between what theory told us and what the facts on the ground looked like. Ruggeri says their paper was directly stimulated by Trump and the similarities they saw between populist uprisings in Europe and the U.S. Our interest uh, sparked during the 2016 election night, and two of us you know, had been in the United States only for a few months, and so we will never forget that night. Uh, but how the, our interest evolved was really by looking at the striking similarities between Trump's victory in the United States and the reasons why British voters voted to leave the European Union and how campaigns evolved in France, Germany, and our own country, Italy. So uh, these common patterns, both on the supply side, so looking at elite rhetoric, and also on the demand side, by comparing the Midwest with certain regions of Europe and looking at the European literature, made us want to investigate more and more the mechanism linking trade integration with support for right-wing parties and political increasing uh, political polarization. Bisbee and Ruggeri both see the field taking a keener interest in domestic politics since traditional international economic models of trade did not seem to fully explain the politics. The story I have of how I arrived and how I got interested in this topic was recognizing sort of the failure of traditional economic models to appropriately account for how painful trade shocks can be. And I think perhaps that could explain sort of the the IPE disciplines shift toward these more micro level analyses. 
overall, this conference has shown that, uh, you know, the distinction between comparative political economy and international political economy uh, has become more and more blurred in the past few years. And this is probably due to the fact that the rise of uh, parties and candidates campaigning heavily against trade and globalization has stimulated scholarly interest in the domestic political effects of international economic phenomena, such as trade integration. So on the one hand, we can say that comparative political economists have become more acquainted with uh, factoring international trade in their analysis of domestic political environments. Uh, on the other hand, international political economists have increasingly paid attention to the domestic sources and consequences of interstate economic relations. And the value of bringing uh, IPE to the field is a sound understanding of international economic theory, which is certainly you know, the baseline theory to interpret the effects of international trade and finance on domestic politics. But as we actually show in the paper, standard open economy politics views may sometimes be misleading because people may not be fully aware of how trade materially affects their material welfare. So it's important, we believe, to bring IP into the debate of domestic politics. Both papers helped to reconcile the public idea that trade competition from China helped Trump with the scholarly idea that nativist views mattered more than economic attitudes. I find basically that people who live in areas or nearby where jobs are lost due to free trade become different in their policy preferences and different in three specific ways. I show that they become more likely to think free trade is bad for the United States. I show that they're less likely to think that immigrants benefit the country. And finally, I show that these people are less likely to think the United States should be a global leader. These are sort of intuitive findings, but what's interesting, I think, about them is that these move without movement in you know, opinions on global warming or, or abortion or gay marriage, uh, which makes it me think it's sort of a a very specific, what I'm calling a nativist response to trade shocks. Our paper focuses on a recent chain of events. So trade integration, especially since China accessed the World Trade Organization in 2001, um, has had really disruptive effects on local labor markets, especially those that specialized in textiles or other labor-intensive manufacturing industries. This happened both in the United States and in Europe. And in the meantime, a growing strand of the literature and political economy has shown that global competition with these Chinese exports triggered sizable political effects, both in Europe and the US. For example, through uh, increased political polarization and support for right-wing parties. And so our paper really tries to answer the question, what is the link between economic insecurity triggered by trade integration and support for right-wing parties, especially Republicans in the United States. So on the one hand, we show the people residing in areas that were affected more severely, directly or indirectly by trade integration, were more likely to express more negative attitudes towards immigrants and racial, ethnic and religious minorities. On the other hand, we observe a change in the way Republican presidential candidates talk about trade. So Republican candidates were very consistent in campaigning on anti-immigration, especially legal immigration stances, as well as pointing to issues of criminal justice when they talked about 
religious and uh, ethnic minorities. But at the same time, there was a huge change in the way they spoke about trade. They moved from full support of free trade with McCain in 2008 to protectionism with Trump. And so we conclude that trade seems to have little leverage in explaining why regions that were exposed to emperor competition consistently supported Republican presidential, presidential candidates. And so we actually combine these two elements of demand and supply to show that support for Republicans in import-exposed regions is mediated more by a cultural backlash phenomenon, so attitudes towards immigrants and minorities, rather than by the fact that people change their opinions about limiting foreign imports or international trade agreements. Bisbee says this matches public assumptions, but shows that there are larger groups of politically influential losers from trade. For a non-academic audience, this is very intuitive. I mean, certainly, certainly it sort of checks out with our gut instincts, I think. However, I think the scholarly research sort of traditionally has sort of thought free trade or opinions on trade are, are not really important. Trade hasn't been thought of as a salient issue for at least recent uh, research on American public opinion. So if you look back over the last 30 years or so, uh, a lot of the research on trade and on opinions on trade was very focused on looking at whether what industry you worked in or, or what occupation you held predicted your opinions on trade. And so sort of this research was, was motivated by basically trying to test these economic models that say, you know, in the United States, if you work in manufacturing, you are, quote, a loser under free trade, right? Or if you are low skilled in the United States, you are, quote, a loser under free trade. And so what I think my research contributes, I mean, certainly my findings at the, at the very most basic level support previous research in that they find people who are adversely affected by trade hold more negative views of trade. However, what I've done is sort of expand or broaden how we define who these losers are. So unlike previous research, which simply focuses on only the individual and says, what is your occupation or where do you work? I've sort of expanded that definition to say, it's not exactly, it doesn't have to be your occupation or where you work. It can also be where you live, right? So my, my, my value or my, my contribution, I guess I would say is expanding the definition of who we think of when we think of trades losers. And I think this challenges sort of the conventional wisdom because under the conventional wisdom, you've got, you know, manufacturing workers in the United States, uh, maybe some farmers who we think of as trades losers, but they're a very small minority of the population. What I find is that there is a much larger latent political coalition who is negatively affected by trade by virtue of living in areas where firms shut down, where there's increasing unemployment, in some cases increasing crime. And Ruggieri says it shows trade can matter even if people don't specifically react to it. Trade for long has been considered a low salience issue, so it has played a role in electoral politics since a few years ago. And so recently, the effects of trade on electoral politics have been devoted much more attention. And we actually build on studies that assess whether Chinese import competition affect political outcomes. And we confirm the findings of previous papers that in the United States, 
competition with uh, Chinese imports systematically supports Republicans. But we challenge the conventional wisdom that this is due to demand for protection. We believe there is a different channel, a more direct one, cultural backlash channel, which took place uh, between 2000 and 2016, especially after China's accession to the World Trade Organization, uh, in which people systematically increased their support for Republicans because Republicans campaigned more heavily on stances that resonated better in these communities that experienced economic insecurity due to trade integration. So that's how we differ from previous studies. To dig into the papers, we need to review their local measures of the extent to which an area was negatively affected by trade. Bisbee explains the two measures he combines, one based on applications for compensation for trade-related losses, and the other, classic measure used in both papers, based on how Chinese industry-level capacity differently competed with industries in each U.S. area. The Trade Adjustment Assistance Program is this it's a federal program that was started back in the 60s, and it was very explicitly designed to compensate trades losers, right? And the way it works is groups of workers file a petition to the Department of Labor asking for additional support in the event that they've either lost their jobs or lost some wages. And so these applications are then sort of, they're investigated by, by someone from the Department of Labor and then either certified or denied, depending on whether there's evidence to support the claim that these people's jobs were indeed lost due to trade competition of some, some type. And so the benefit, there's sort of two really nice attributes to these data. The first is that it's actually quite hard to determine whether or not someone has lost their job due to free trade or lost their job for some other reason, right? And so even if you're just only interested in sort of a labor market story, you still need to make some assumptions about is it industry or is it occupation or is it skill level? How exactly can we create a measure of, quote, trade-related job loss? And so this TAA data is really useful for me because it represents, at least in the minds of the workers who have applied for this support, in their minds, they think they lost their jobs due to free trade, right? So if I'm interested in sort of making sure that your average Joe on the ground is correctly, or maybe even incorrectly, but as long as they think free trade has been bad to them, that represents a kind of ground truth measure is pretty difficult to get at using other, other methods. The second benefit is that it's very rich data. So each row in this data set is a petition that contains information on how many people were laid off, as well as the address of the specific site where they were laid off, right? So it's not for bigger firms, uh, if someone was laid off at a Starbucks, it's not the address of the Starbucks headquarters in Seattle. It's actually the address of the specific Starbucks shop somewhere in the United States. And so what that allows me to do is get really rich uh, geographic information. I can assign each application a latitude and longitude, so I know exactly where it is. However, this is also a problematic measure in, in many ways, right? The TAA, this, this program is a political program. And so what that means is you've got members of Congress, some of whom like the program and will advocate to their constituents to take advantage of it, and others who won't. And so that's a potentially concerning 
thing if I'm trying to say this is my measure of trade shocks, right? Because it might mean that in certain parts of the country where you've got members of Congress who don't promote the program, I might be missing some data there that could confound sort of the conclusions I draw. And so it's really rich, it's geographically dense, and it gives me a, a ground truth insight into the minds of the people who apply. But there is these, there's these potential concerns with it. So I, I don't trust it entirely to extract a causal claim if I just use it by itself. What I do is I supplement my analysis with an instrumental variable that is based off of some work by David Autor, David Dorn, and uh, Gordon Hansen. So these, these guys wrote a pretty influential paper back in 2013 that created a new type of instrument, uh, an instrumental variable where they assign Chinese imports to counties in the United States using a pretty painstaking and sophisticated way of connecting, say, a bicycle to the particular detailed industry that in the United States makes those bicycles and then says, in these counties, this industry is relatively prevalent, right? So you can say for workers in these counties, they are affected more or less by these Chinese imports, right? And so this is what I mean when I was saying earlier, it's hard to actually come up with a measure of of trade shocks, because in doing this, they're relying on the assumption that industry is the correct way to separate trades winners and losers. But so this instrument arguably buys me a little more causal identification insofar as it relies on the assumption that changes in Chinese productivity, right? So over the last 30 years, China has grown more productive. It's sort of unlocked its labor potential. You've had massive rural to urban migration. That growth in Chinese productivity can't impact uh, someone's opinion on trade or immigrants or U.S. global leadership in the United States, except through its impact on U.S. jobs via import competition. And so when I combine these two measures together, I get, on the one hand, this really rich geographic information, which allows me to say, okay, I've got a survey respondent living within 100 miles of a firm and another survey respondent who is the same race, the same age, the same education level, but living 500 miles from a firm. I think I can compare them, but at the same time, I'm also getting more causal purchase. I can say something more causal by using only the variation in these measures that comes from the, the growth in Chinese productivity. Ruggeri Chabato and Maria Ferreira also use the Chinese import competition measure, which they say provides causal estimates of direct and indirect influences from trade, but they aggregate it to the district level. The main benefit of this index and approach developed by uh, Dorn, Alder, and Hansen is that it captures both the direct and indirect effects of Chinese import competition and trade integration more in general. Uh, there are really two effects of Chinese import competition on local labor markets. On the one hand, a direct effect on manufacturing employment, which declined substantially after in those regions that experienced uh, layoffs and competition with foreign imports in general. 
But on the other hand, there is an indirect effect on non-tradable services. Uh, and this effect is not through employment, but through compressed wages. So we believe that this measure captures a broad, the broad consequences of trade integration. Uh, on the other hand, a shortfall may be due to the fact that it masks some heterogeneity within commuting zones, because this index requires some aggregation, uh, which is not ideal. And so while trade-related layoffs may be well localized within commuting zones, this index aggregates a bit too much. And this is supported by the fact that, you know, anecdotal evidence points to the fact that small and medium-sized towns and communities were more severely affected by trade shocks, especially when a large fraction of local employment depended on a firm that shut down. And so our index probably misses something of this and aggregates a bit too much. Um, we know that the uh, estimates we have are causal because we believe, and it has been shown several times, that the two key assumptions of an instrumental variable approach are satisfied. So on the one hand, this unprecedented expansion of Chinese manufacturing capacity led to a surge and a simultaneous surge in Chinese exports towards a large number of advanced economies. So the, the growth in Chinese exports towards the United States are highly correlated with the growth in Chinese exports towards many advanced economies. And on the other hand, as far as exogeneity is concerned, it seems implausible to assume that this unprecedented expansion in Chinese manufacturing capacity be directly related to local voting behavior. It's likely that the channel through which the increase in Chinese import competition affects voting behavior is through local labor market conditions, such as the one captured by our main independent variable. Bisbee finds effects on support for trade, immigration, and U.S. leadership that are not huge, but not much smaller than the effects of party and education. They're significant. They're not substantively large. So what I'm, I'm definitely not trying to say this is an epiphanal or, or enormous effect I'm finding. I, I show that it's, I mean, in the more conservative specification, you're between two and five percentage points more likely to believe that free trade is bad if you're exposed to uh, trade-related layoffs. So that's not a huge effect. However, to put it in, in sort of context, it's commensurate to, it's about two-thirds the size of the coefficient on education, right? So if you compare college-educated to non-college-educated respondents, college respondents are more likely to think that free trade is good relative to non-college res respondents. It's also about two-thirds the size of the difference between Republicans and Democrats, the U.S. would be 7 to 15 percentage points less protectionist than it is with the trade shocks that I, that I use. He finds larger effects for immigration opinions in areas with larger immigrant increases and larger trade effects when media coverage of trade was higher. Areas of the United States that back in 1990 were in the bottom quartile of the distribution of the foreign-born population but have grown rapidly over the last 20 years. Those are the areas where the xenophobic response is strongest, which suggests effectively immigrants are salient on the minds of people who live in these areas, and they are more sensitive to the potential associated threat when they also see trade-related layoffs, right? So that's, that's the immigrant story. I also do a little bit of, of the same thing looking at national media coverage of trade during periods where the national media is covering trade more intensely, these protectionist responses are also stronger. So there's two pieces of evidence there to me suggesting 
part of this story is a salience story. Bisbee also finds an effect on voting for Trump. Though not huge, an extreme change in trade competition would have been enough to help Clinton win three more states in the election. I find a significant positive relationship. It's only roughly a two percentage point shift toward toward Trump relative to their support for Romney. But it is non-trivial. And an important thing to keep in mind here is that these are coefficients that, you know, we estimate or I estimate them using the entire data. But when you actually, again, so I do another counterfactual where I say, what would have the 2016 election looked like had there been no trade-related layoffs? Again, this sort of very extreme thought experiment. And when I do that, I show, what is it? It's Pennsylvania, Iowa, and Wisconsin would have flipped for Clinton according to, to the marginal effect that trade had on shifting support for Trump, right? So there's two, two things I want to be sort of clear about here. One, I'm not saying Trump was elected due to trade. The, the marginal effect that I document is, is relatively small, albeit significant. And the counterfactual in which Clinton would have won is an extreme counterfactual that would require there to be no trade shocks over the preceding four years. Ruggieri looked at three elections, 2008, 12, and 16. They first showed that Republicans had been consistently more nativist in their rhetoric, whereas only Trump had embraced protectionism. Our text analysis shows that Republican and Democratic presidential candidates were much more consistent uh, than one may think in terms of rhetoric regarding issues of criminal justice, ethnic minorities, and immigration. Of course, we see from our main findings that there is increasing polarization on these topics, but the relative stances of Republicans and Democrats are not that different between 2008 and 2016. Of course, the change in trade policy platforms was stark between 2008 and 2016, and McCain's campaign was ideally in favor of free trade. Romney was less protectionist than Obama, and McCain as well. Trump changed everything. And this may be kind of difficult to digest as of now, but there is plenty of anecdotal evidence uh, that points to the fact that Obama was in fact slightly more protectionist than both Republican candidates he campaigned against in 2008, 2012. There are several clips on YouTube that confirm this uh, rhetoric against jobs being shop- uh, shipped overseas. They also found clear but not huge effects on immigration and minority group attitudes. Our analysis, first of all, confirms that you know, the traditional demographic determinants of voting behavior are also strong predictors of individual attitudes towards minorities and immigrants. So race, ethnicity, education are all there. They are still strong, and we do not worry about that. But at the same time, there is an, there is an additional effect due to competition with Chinese uh, imports. And this effect is quite sizable for uh, immigrants relative to, to it mean around 3%. And also on religious minorities, especially Muslims, seems to seem to be targeted quite a lot in the order of two, three percent compared to the mean score. We use a dependent variable which is called feeling thermometer, which is a cardinal measure, which is not easy to interpret, but it's an idea that gives a sense of how people appreciate certain categories. So let's say that an, a one standard deviation increase in input penetration. So if a person were to move from a certain area to an area with a one standard deviation higher degree of input competition would be 2% less likely to have a high appreciation for Hispanics and around 3% more likely 
to oppose illegal immigration and believe in the negative effects of immigration. So our analysis confirms that you know, the traditional determinants of voting behavior, race, ethnicity, education are also strong predictors of individual attitudes towards minorities, religious outgroups, and immigrants. Um, and then we use a dependent variable, which is a cardinal feeling thermometer, uh, which is not very easy to interpret. But given its mean, what we can say is that if a person were to move from a certain commuting zone, to a commuting zone which has a, a one standard deviation higher index of penetration, then the, he, he, that he or she would be close to 2% less likely to support immigration into the United States. And the effect is even more sizable in terms of opinions against Muslims or in terms of favoring religious in-groups such as Christian fundamentalists. So the effects are quite sizable, especially when they are compared the mean score for the interviewed individuals. But they did not find an effect on trade opinions. Trade is a complex phenomenon, and, and, and the complexity of this phenomenon helps justify why we do not find a sizable effect of import competition on opinions about trade. It may be the case that in local communities, small towns where then opinions might be affected more, but at least in our analysis, uh, which is based on local areas such as uh, commuting zones, this effect is uh, almost non-existent. Despite that key difference between the paper's findings, both agree that economics can help change racial attitudes. Bisbee says economic conditions can exaggerate racial concerns. I think it's sort of a false dichotomy to say it's either economic resentment or it's, it's racial resentment. I think what I show is that sort of humans worse instincts, right, our xenophobia, our racial resentment, um, these are not exogenous. They're not handed down by God when we're born. We are not born with a certain level of animosity. Rather, they're exaggerated or mute, muted by economic conditions. And so I think, I think there's space in the current debate to acknowledge that uh, the, the racial resentment story is potentially itself endogenous to an economic decline. Henry Gary says people look for easy group targets when they suffer economically. When individuals experience economic insecurity due to, in this case, economic downturn due to foreign competition, our argument is that uh, they look for potential targets that are easily identifiable, who can, be, who can be directly or indirectly blamed for the economic insecurity. Of course, the fact that these categories bear absolutely no relevance to the economic downturn is uh, is irrelevant. And the most easily identifiable targets seem to be ethnic and religious minorities as well as immigrants. And this happens in our view because the short and especially the long-term consequence of international trade may be quite difficult to grasp for ordinary citizens. It's true that if a factory shuts down a local community, everybody will understand its causes, but this does not imply that people would change their opinions and would have capability of changing their opinions about international trade in a way that would affect voting behavior. So cultural backlash seems to be a channel that consistently predicts support for Republicans in areas subject to tighter import competition. It started all in the South with the presence of manufacturing was substantial starting from 2008, and this uh, was enriched by the Midwest in 2016. So nativism is really, is really a consequence of how people change their opinions about targets that are easily identifiable. 
Ruggieri found that most of the negative effects of trade on democratic voting are mediated by their effects on racial attitudes. And what we find is, I think, very interesting is the idea that the direct effect of improper competition on voting for Republicans, what we actually see in the data, is actually smaller than in magnitude than the mediated effect. So what it means is that if the effect of improper competition on voting for Republicans were only channeled through these mediators, such as opinions about uh, ethnic minorities and religious outgroups, this effect will be even stronger than the actual one we observe in the data by a factor of two or even three. So there are actually some factors which seem to mitigate the effect of improper competition on Republican, on the support for Republicans. And this may, due for exa- may be due, for example, to the economic benefits from trade. Another key difference is that while Bisbee looked at changes from Romney to Trump voting, Ruggieri showed both the trade effect and the cultural backlash mechanism helped Republicans in 2008 and 2012 as well. A lot of the effect of the pro-conservative effect of improper competition is still there in 2008-2012. Trump really turned the table in the Midwest and did something unique in a region that had never been Republican. But even if we analyze the three elections together, even if we analyze the three elections separately, uh, we see an effect of a pro-conservative effect. The effect of improper on individual attitudes towards uh, ethnic and racial minorities and immigrants was still there in 2008. Probably it was a bit confounded by the uh, anti-incumbent Obama effect in 2012, but we definitely find a strong effect of impenetration on individual attitudes in 2008 and 2016, which confirms previous evidence by other research, which points to the pro-conservative effect of improper competition, even, even in congressional elections in 2008 and 2016. Bisbee says the differences are likely attributable to the trade question they use and how close the local trade shock measures are to the individuals surveyed. They show that it's it's mostly the resentment is toward Asians and Hispanics, but not toward African-Americans. So they think this is evidence of like more recent ethnic minorities is consistent with an anti-immigrant story, but not a broader, a broader racial antipathy story. So they also find no real effect in their measure for opinions on trade. And I think there's probably two reasons why we come up with the same findings for xenophobia but different findings for for trade. I think the first is simply the question that I use is again, it's this Pew Research Survey question that says, uh, do you think free trade has been good or bad for the United States? And so insofar as trade is a relatively complicated policy, right? There's, there's tariffs, there's non-tariff barriers, there's quotas, there's all these different policy tools that can be used. An easier question like the Pew one is more likely to uh, elicit responses from survey respondents. So Francesco and his co-authors, I think they use three different measures. One of them asking about imports. It's about imports. It's about trade agreements. So there's slightly more detailed questions, which may not elicit the same sort of gut reaction that my my respondents seem to. So that's potentially the first explanation. The second is... The, the unit of analysis, right? So they're you aggregating up, they're doing congressional districts, which is absolutely the, the appropriate unit for the questions that they're trying to answer. Whereas I'm much smaller. I'm either doing commuting zones, uh, counties, or in sort of, you know, I've got this, this section of my paper that says, let's forget about geographic units completely. Let's 
just measure distance between every respondent and every firm and apply these different weights to assess how fast the decay is, like how far away do you have to move before you're no longer reacting to these, these trade shocks. Ruggeri agrees that the differences in findings are likely based on the trade survey question and the measure of trade shocks. So our papers, of course, share you know, the same interest in shedding light on the mechanism linking international trade and mass public opinion in the United States. Uh, there are some differences in terms of you know, research design and, of course, as a consequence, results. Um, two of the main differences, I think, are the dependent variable, uh, which is basically how questions are being asked. Uh, BSB uses data from the Pew Research Center, while we rely on the American National Election Studies, and actually questions asked are quite different. The wording of the survey is different. Our questions are mainly based on specific policy related to international trade, while Pew questions are closer to general opinions about trade. But the main difference, I would say, is in the independent variable. Using county-level county trade-related layoffs from the TAA is actually quite different from using a measure of import competition at the commuting zone level, which, as I mentioned before, really captures both the direct effect of trade integration and the indirect, indirect effect on the service, non-tradable sector, for example. So these differences can explain why we have no findings on uh, specific questions about international trade policy. And in fact, he finds uh, a, a significant effect. These differences may be partly due to these differences in surveys and independent variables, but they are not, I think they can be reconciled. Uh, there is some evidence supporting the fact that there is bundling in how people perceive, you know, how people have opinions, form their opinions about immigrants, minorities, and international trade. Maybe the fact that there is a stronger effect on immigration activists toward outgroups, but at the same time, this carries over the effect on opinions about international trade. So is this a specific story about U.S. politics or a broader trend? Ruggeri sees lots of similarities with European politics. The channel is definitely there, even in Europe. And, and also there is a current research done by Colantona and Stanek at Bocconi University, which actually is very closely related to our findings. And they show that opinions about immigrants, minorities, authoritarian values are uh, triggered by uh, trade integration and Voters in those regions actually seem to behave quite similarly to Republican voters in the Midwest and in the South. So the, the similarities in terms of geography and elite rhetoric are really striking. And the, 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 the interesting question will be, how will governments react to this? But he says we don't know if the findings are specific to Chinese competition or to trade more generally. In order to have a plausible exogenous variation due to the unprecedented expansion of a big countries' manufacturing capacity, we are using China as a benchmark. So it's hard to tell whether this would be true if any other country's manufacturing capacity expanded. But uh, definitely the, the, the surge in Chinese exports to the entire world is a unique phenomenon that provided a, a fantastic natural experiment for researchers to study the political consequences and not only the political consequences of uh, international trade. The thing is that China is used as a tool to study these effects. Uh, the external validity is, of course, uh, a big question mark, as in all research that is rigorous in empirical economics. And so it, it's hard to tell, but definitely there's a lot specific to China about those research because the research design is based on a very specific 
an unprecedented, as I mentioned, surge in Chinese exports throughout the entire world. So what comes next? Bisbee says Republican opinion has shifted back and forth on trade, making it not obvious whether Congress will follow Trump toward protectionism. The degree to which rank-and-file GOP members of Congress will go along with Trump and break with sort of tradi- the traditional party platform is always going to be a function of whether they think that will help them electorally. It's always going to be a function of whether their constituents are on board. And one thing that is really fascinating to look at is, so the Pew Research Center asks, I've used their data in my paper, and they ask the question that I use as my outcome variable is, do you think free trade has been a good thing or a bad thing for the United States? And they've got their most recent plots, right? After, after the period that I analyzed, they continue to ask this question um, in 2017 and 2018. And it's this amazing partisan divergence where Republicans were towing the party line, pro-free trade, right up until 2016, and then absolutely nosedived, right? Really just fell off a cliff, which is, you know, you can't get clear evidence of the impact of elite communication on, on public preferences than that. But what is even more interesting, potentially, so that sort of the nadir of this shift was in I think March or May of 2017, and then mid 2018, they released another survey asking the same question, and Republicans are rebounding, right? So they've gone from, I think, 60-ish percent support of free trade down to a low in 2017 of, I think, 36 percent, and now they're coming back up sort of reverting, mean reverting back to the traditional stance. And I think that is very important to keep in mind when we're trying to guess how effective is this platform for Trump going to be. A lot of a lot of the conversation about the first two years of his presidency has been, again and again, GOP leaders falling in line with him. And I don't think I don't think there's a fundamental change in the calculus there. I think the GOP leaders were reading the tea leaves among their constituents. And I think potentially this mean reversion of support for free trade among Republican voters could suggest that that the GOP members of Congress are not going to follow along with Trump's Trump's trade plan as it as it goes forward. Ruggeri agrees that Republicans are divided, even their voters. One important factor to bear in mind is that the Republican Party is highly heterogeneous, and we saw that in the recent uh, midterm election in November. Uh, For example, plenty of anecdotal evidence from uh, Orange County, California, points to the fact that Republican voters are not just rural or living in manufacturing-intensive areas, but maybe well-educated, well-off, and living in suburban areas. And those voters are unlikely to be supporting protectionist stances, and we believe this will make it very difficult to form coalition on divisive topics such as protectionist uh, policy. And there's, of course, a lot more research to do. Bisbee wants to look at the local environment of trade shocks. Can people really see it in their city? The transmission mechanisms are really the really interesting thing now, both in terms of scholarly interest and in terms of, you know, if you're a policymaker, a politician, an advocate, whatever, understanding exactly how these opinions move is crucial. And so a couple of things I've been doing, I already mentioned looking at mediation analysis using designated market areas. 
I'm also also collecting data at the moment that uses Google, was it Street View, where I'm going to, for more recent uh, layoffs in the TAA data set, I want to use Google Street View to actually look at and use image, image analysis to look at the environment around which these layoffs are being recorded and to try and assess whether sort of social urban decay is at all prognostic of the strength of the response toward the layoffs, right? And again, this is going to speak to this question of, is it elite communication or is it the your day-to-day life, what you see as you go about your business? And Gary wants to look at whether governments can do anything to compensate the losers from trade and whether elites are driving the cultural backlash or just responding to it. There are lots of interesting avenues of research stemming from this literature and I think it's, it's surprising how little we know about the political effects of welfare state are aimed at, you know, compensating the losers from globalization and seeing how and to which extent state and local governments can compensate these losers and attenuate, if we can say that, the uh, effects of globalization on the rise of radical right uh, movements and increasing polarization. So more research, we think, is needed on the geography of the political effects of wealth transfers in the United States, especially exploiting the state and local heterogeneity uh, in this context. And another interesting avenue is disentangling demand and supply in the effect of improper competition on voting. In our tax analysis, we show a change in the equilibrium condition over time. We show that Republicans switched from support of free trade to uh, protectionism. And we also know that people residing in tighter intercompetition areas were more likely to support Republican candidates. But we do not know whether this is a bottom-up or a top-down phenomenon. So who's driving this fact? Who's driving this change in the equilibrium condition? Is it elite rhetoric mainly or bottom-up approach stemming from the fact that people experience economic insecurity and rhetoric matches this demand. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Francesco Ruggeri and James Bisbee for joining me. Please check out their papers and then join us next time.